If you, uh, if you have a Bible, uh, I'll invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 17. There's the text on the screen, Acts 17, 16 to 31. Um, if you uh, if you don't have a Bible, hopefully you're sitting by someone who does, and they'll be kind enough to let you share. But if not, uh, there's some extras up here. So to anybody that will admit that they need a Bible. All right, cool. All right, excellent. There we go. Anybody else? Well, good. All right, back there. Great. Oh, no, you don't have to come down here, but that's great. Okay, super. Excellent. Acts 17, uh, 16 and 31 is what we're going to look at this morning. Um, I'm going to be honest, we're going to, I'm going to read all of that, but we're going to focus in on uh, 16, 16 through 21, um, but, but and just touch upon um, you know, 22 through 31, and then maybe look in more detail at that next week. Because for the next two weeks, we're going to be talking about um, and looking into the scriptures so that God can teach us about evangelism. And uh, evangelism, that's a word that describes, you know, uh, what we as Christ followers do in communicating, sharing the gospel. In fact, the, the, the word evangelism is, is almost inseparable from the word gospel. You know, in, in, uh, it, it's, it's almost the same word. Evangelism almost means gospeling. You know, as it, let's go gospeling. Uh, and, and so we're going to be talking about evangelism. And if you're here this morning and you are a follower of Christ, you will probably agree with me that evangelism is essential to, the, to our lives as Christ followers, to us as a community of faith, and to... Um, uh, uh, and, and to us as, uh, you know, the church, would you agree it, that evangelism is central? I mean, we probably all agree that, yes, that's important. When I, when I ask a question, um, I'm anticipating that you will answer. Okay, so um, if I'm going to ask a rhetorical question, I'll say, this is a rhetorical question which you can think about and answer in your heart and mind, but not out loud. But if I don't preface it with that, then I'm anticipating a verbal answer. Okay, so, do you understand? Yes. Very good, you do. Excellent, excellent, yeah. So, uh, would you agree that evangelism is important? Yes. That it is essential? Yes. Right. Now, would you also agree that most of the time we are disappointed and recognize that, for the most part, we don't do evangelism very well. Would you also agree to that? Yes. I would agree to that in my own life. And looking around, it seems like that's, you know, kind of um, the pattern for a lot of Christ followers. Now, this is one of those rhetorical questions you don't have to answer out loud. Think in your mind right now, when was the last time you shared the gospel with someone? Where you talked about sin... Separation from God, forgiveness and salvation in Jesus, and and asked uh, uh, that person if they were ready to receive Christ, to break, oh, to, to ask them to make some kind of you know, will you continue to think about this? What do you think of it? Asking for some kind of response from them, either to say, oh, yeah, I don't buy that. Whatever. When was the last time 
that was part of your life experience. That'll probably give if you if you can say, oh man, I was yesterday, or that was this morning. I was like, great, you know. Um, and if it was, well, you have to think a little bit. No, 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 Oh yeah, that was like two weeks ago. Or if you just can't think of the last time, then you know we we have to be honest. I mean, that's a problem. So this morning, I want us to look at Acts 17 and kind of talk about it and get into the heart of evangelism. So. If you have your copy of Scripture open to Acts 17, and follow along while I read, beginning in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the uh, Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also uh, conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him, and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as, as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life, breath, and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the earth, <clears throat> and having determined allotted periods, in the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they may they may feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet He is actually not far from each one of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own your your own poets have said. For we are His offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So as we talk about the heart of worship, I mean the heart of evangelism, Sorry, I'm just thinking of a song. Uh, as we think about the heart of evangelism, you know, what what is it that that is central that is that that makes our evangelism go? What 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 pumps the blood and and gives life to that? What is at the heart of evangelism? Um, I think we start with motive, and actually, it starts with the condition of our own heart. I want you to notice in, in Acts 17, when Paul is in Athens and he's waiting for his companions, and the scripture says that his spirit was provoked within him because of something. What was it? The city was full of idols. The city was full of idols. There was idolatry. 
idolatry everywhere. And so Paul's spirit within him was provoked. That word provoked is very interesting. You know, because it, 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 it implies, it carries with it a couple of meanings. You know, on the one hand, this provoked just kind of means angry. And frustrated Paul has a righteous indignation because of the idolatry, all of the idols that are, that are in the city of Athens. The idolatry that's going on everywhere. He, he has a righteous indignation. He's, he's just angry. And we're going to get to the source of that in just a moment. But that word provoked also kind of carries the meaning of, of jealousy. He, he's also jealous. And, and, and not, not, not in a, um, you know, junior high-ish kind of way. You know, not, not, not that kind of jealousy. Okay, you know, not a selfish jealousy. Because let's face it, when you and I get jealous, you know, it's, it's normally a selfish Jealousy. In other words, someone else has something that we wanted. And so we're jealous, and, and that's motivated by selfishness and pride. But, but the kind of jealousy that, that is implied in that word provoked is not, Paul's not jealous for anything about himself, but he's jealous about something that belongs to God. You see, here's why Paul was so angry and so, so provoked, so grieved, and so jealous about this idolatry, because the idolatry in Athens is an attempt to steal God's glory. That's why, that's why Paul, Paul is so passionate, passionate about God's glory, that he's provoked, he's angered, and he's grieved when God's glory is being trashed by all of this idolatry. You know, twice in the book of Isaiah, and it's chapter 42 and in chapter 48, God says, basically, these words. I will not give my glory to another. I, I think it's in chapter 42. He says, you know, I'm the Lord and that's my name. I will not give my glory to another or, my, or share my praise with carved images or graven images. And, and what was going on in Athens was an, just a direct, a, a, a direct... Slap in the face to God's glory. Exactly what God said he would not tolerate. His glory being given to another and his praise being given to graven images, carved images. That's exactly, that's exactly what was going on in Athens. And, and because Paul is zealous for God's glory. Because he is passionate about God's glory, about God receiving the glory that is rightfully His because of who He is and because of what He has done, the glory that belongs to Him. Paul doesn't want to see that go anywhere but to God. He doesn't want to see it you know, usurped in any way, see it trying to be stolen and given to something worthless. I mean, it's, it's taking the glory that belongs to the only one who's worthy and giving it to worthlessness. That's what the idolatry is. And, and Paul is provoked. He's grieved. He's, he, he's angry. He's jealous for God's glory. And so, he responds to that, that provoking in his spirit, that righteous indignation... That, that, that godly sorrow that he feels and experiences because God's glory is being usurped, being trashed, his response is to go and share the gospel. 
It says, he's waiting in Athens. His spirit is provoked because of all the idolatry, because of all the idols. So he goes to the synagogues and reasons with the Jews. And he goes to the marketplace and reasons to whoever is there. And he engages the, the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers in conversation. And all along, do you know what he's talking about? Jesus and the resurrection. That's, that's what he's talking about. His response to all of that idolatry is evangelism. That, that righteous indignation, that godly sorrow, that provoking in his spirit because of the idolatry that's around is translated into evangelistic activity by Paul. And that ought to say something about where our heart needs to be when it comes to evangelism. Where our motive needs to be as we think about evangelistic activity. It starts with our passion for God's glory. I mean, do we have a passionate desire for God's glory, to see Him glorified? And are we provoked? I mean, are we provoked? Is there a, are we angry and sorrowful when we see God's glory being trashed, His name being profaned? I mean, that was Paul's response. He was provoked. And then he communicated the gospel. And you know, uh, passion. I kept, I've been talking about being passionate or having a passion for God's glory. And I don't know if I, 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 I've used this a lot of times, and I don't know if I've used it in this setting or not in here with you guys. But, you know, I, I, I'm convinced that, that, that passion and then its opposite, which is indifference. So passion and indifference, opposites. The difference between those two kind of hinges on how you how you use or how you live out, how you understand one word. And that word is whatever. See, indifference, indifference shrugs its shoulders and says, whatever, whatever, doesn't matter. Anybody ever used whatever that way? Raise your hand. Yes, I have, probably often. You know, it's like, praise him or if they don't. You know, if if oh, you know, if they've got a couple idols, eh, whatever. No, that's not Paul's response. His response is whatever it takes, I'm gonna see to it that these people understand who God is and what he's worth. And so he immediately goes out into the marketplace and into the synagogue and among the wise and learned. Everybody. That cover, he covers the whole population and he's out there reasoning with them. He's living out. Paul is living out. You know, he's expressing here, we get an example of an, a, a, a 
lived out expression of, of what Peter says about always, you know, being right. Well, to hold Christ the Lord in your heart is holy. And because you do that, you're always ready to give a reason when anybody asks for the hope that's within you. Paul's living that out in this right here in Athens, in this passage of Scripture. He's, he's, he's reasoning. He's given a reason. He's given a reason for what he believes and what he's passionate about and the hope that he has in him. He's, he is ready and giving that reason. His, his passion for God's glory is translated into evangelistic activity. But I want you to notice how that passion and zeal for God's glory, how he gets provoked. It's because... He's got his eyes open. He recognizes idolatry. And he addresses that idolatry with the gospel. Okay? And that's a great pattern for you and I to follow as we think about evangelism. We've got to have our eyes open and recognize idolatry. Every culture has its idols. I remember uh, uh, a sermon uh, by Mark Driscoll, and he was talking about idolatry. And he tells the story about walk. He's in India. He's in India, and he's walking down the road with this Indian pastor and his wife. And there's this sort of this broad place in the road, you know, and and then there. There's this uh, altar, and there's blood on the altar, and there's feathers around, and uh, clearly this is where they sacrifice chickens to the chicken god or goddess. I, I don't know, you know and, and I don't know if you know Mark Driscoll, but only in the way he can tell the story, you know, he's talking about, yeah, here they are whacking chickens to the chicken god, and in the way he's very colorful and entertaining. But you know, he, the point is, he's confronted with this culture's idolatry right here. He sees the blood, sees the altar, sees the feathers, knows exactly what's going on. And then he turns to the pastor's wife that he's walking along beside the pastor and his wife, and he says, have you ever had the opportunity to visit my country? And she says, yes, and I will never go back because of all the idolatry. He's like thinking in his head, What? We're standing by an altar with blood and feathers on it where people sacrifice chickens to some non-existent God and you're saying that my country is full of idolatry and idols? Well, I, you know, that's what he's thinking, but you know, he's, he kind of uh, puts the brakes on his mouth and, and says, really, well, what was some of the idolatry that you observed? She says, well, first of all, you Americans worship your stomachs. Because there's a restaurant on every street corner. Restaurants are everywhere. All you do is eat. You worship your stomachs. And then you also worship your sports teams. Because you build big cathedrals. Here, stadiums. And you go every Sunday and worship your sports teams. Mm. Man, that hurts. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then she says, finally, Americans worship the television. Because you go in any American home and every chair in the house is pointed towards the television. You worship the TV. Every culture 
has its idols. Sometimes we're blind to them. It's real easy for Mark to see the idolatry, Mark Driscoll to see the idolatry in India, because that wasn't his culture. And so this, this altar with blood and chicken feathers on it, oh, idol, no problem, I see that. But, you know, the, the stomach sports teams and television idolatry, that's a little harder to see. You know, because that's our culture. That might even be our lives. When I was in Cuba one time, can't remember which time it was, um, I was in a cab. Were you in the cab with me? Maybe. When the guy took out the rock, the cabbie took out the rock? I'm not sure. Okay, well, I'll tell the story, and then later on you can decide if you were in the cab or not. Okay, so, so we were in Cuba, uh, in Havana, and we've been sharing the gospel. Well, actually, we were at a church that night. And we were in a cab going back to our hotel, and we had our translator with us, uh, 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 Laura, our translator. She's fantastic. She's quite an evangelist. And, and so she's speaking to the cab driver in rapid-fire Spanish that I don't understand. And, you know, she's getting a track out. And it seems like the conversation's getting a little bit heated. The cab driver seems like he's maybe getting a little bit angry. And Laura feels, seems like she's maybe getting a little angry, too. Cause, you know, and then we stop at her apartment and let her out. And she tells him where to take us in Spanish, because he doesn't speak English. So it's me in the front seat with the cab driver, and then two students that were with me on the mission trip in the back seat. So there's three of us, and none of us speak Spanish. I'm up front with the driver. He takes off. Okay, you know, first of all, a cab, a cab in Havana, okay? A cab, and you're already kind of taking your life in your hands there anyway, okay? Yeah, that is a scary deal. All right, and, you know, a cab ride in Havana. So he's and he's rapid fire space. He's talking to me. He's making, he's gesturing, and blah, blah, blah. and I know that he's talking about, you know, Laura and what she had to say about Christ and the gospel and everything. And I was like, you know, okay. And then he reaches across me and goes to the glove box and like, oh my gosh, good night. What's it gonna be? I'm gonna die. And he's like, I didn't know what he was gonna do. Okay, because. He's reaching across me first, so I don't know what that's all about. And then he's opening the glove box, and he takes out this rock. And there's a face painted on the rock. And he puts the rock on the dashboard and pats it, picks it up, kisses it, puts it back on the dashboard and points to it. And I know what he said. It was in Spanish, and I don't speak Spanish, but he said, that's my God. See, he was involved in the religion, uh, in the Caribbean religion called Santeria. That's very idol, idol heavy. <laughs> and that was his god. That idol, honestly, it looked like an Al Jolson pet rock. <laughs> the mouth was just a perfect circle, and it was, the rock was black, and the, the, and the lips were red, and had these wide eyes. It was just, it was really, I mean, <laughs> it was kind of funny. If it weren't so sad that this man thought his God was a rock that he could keep in his glove box and take it out and put it on his dashboard when he needed it. <coughs> you know, there's idolatry in every culture. Guys, it's our responsibility to identify that idolatry and address it with the gospel. And sometimes we've got to identify that idolatry in our own lives. And guess what? 
The same way you address the idolatry in the culture is the same way you address the idolatry in your own life. It's with the gospel. Because what's at the heart of the gospel? Jesus is God. Right? Isn't that the heart of the gospel? It's all about Jesus and Him being God. And that God became man and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory but didn't recognize it. And He became sin for us. Giving His life as a propitiation. Gotta get that word in, you know? He, he took all of God's wrath on Himself and became sin for us and died and suffered and God accepted that sacrifice and proved that by raising Him from the dead and therefore by repentance and faith in Christ we have salvation and God's wrath is no longer upon us. You know, that, that's how we address the idolatry in our lives, with the truth of the gospel, that Jesus Christ is Lord. He's God. And it is He who has saved us. Man, when we, when we mind the depths of the reality that Christ suffered and died in our place for our sin and our rebellion against God, and He was, He, and, 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 you know, and all that suffering that was put on Him was for us, but He took it, and therefore, He's purchased us out of slavery of sin into being God's children, adoption as God's children. And when we begin to realize all of that, why would we want to worship anything else? Why would we give our heart to anything else? Why wouldn't we be passionate for God's glory, knowing that is who He is and what He has done? You see, that's, that's how you address the idolatry in our own life. But it's also the same way we address the idolatry in our culture. It's by proclaiming the gospel. Now, there's some things I think we need to understand when we proclaim the gospel in our culture as, as, an, as a way of addressing the idolatry motivated by our passionate desire for God's glory. You know, there's something we're, we're going to need to expect. There'll be some who... who just simply will reject. They 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 just they'll they'll reject what we have to say. They might even be, uh, they might even object passionately. They might even object violently. Okay, there'll be some who will do that. In fact, I was reading. Uh, I was on the Voice of the Martyrs website. You gotta go there every once in a while. You never go there. I was reading about some Christian brothers in, in Nigeria who um, it was like twelve Christians, and they were. Uh, uh, accosted by these Muslim, um, like fundamentalist radicals, and uh, all twelve of them were beheaded simply because they followed Christ. That was it. That was the reason. So some are going to violently object, but you know there there'll be some who will want to know more. They'll be interested. You know, like those as Paul was in the synagogue reasoning with the Jews and in the the marketplace, talking to whoever was there, and then out in the, you know, um, then he gets, he's with the Stoic and and Epicurean philosophers, and then he gets called to, to the Areopagus, where people just exchange ideas and everything, but all along the way, 
there are those who thought, hmm, what is this guy trying to say? We don't understand. There's going to be misunderstanding. Okay, there, there is. Okay, there, and there's going to be some who find it strange. Well, what is this strange doctrine that he's teaching? Oh, he must be preaching a foreign divinity. It'll be foreign. Do you know why um, the gospel it seems strange or foreign to so many? Because the gospel is a gospel, a message of grace. All, all, all of. Do you know why Athens was full of altars? Because you had to earn the favor of all those gods by offering sacrifices at their altars. That's why there were so many altars and so much idolatry in Athens, because everybody thought, well, if I'm going to be right with the God that I worship, I have to earn that God's favor by offering a certain kind of sacrifice at a certain altar. In fact, they were so worried about offending uh, a God they didn't even know about, they had an altar to the unknown God. They were so concerned about, oh, well, we don't want to offend any gods out there. Like, so they got, you know, we got the chicken god, and we got the camel god, and we got the sun god, and we got the, you know, and we got Zeus, and all these. And then if there's a god out there we don't know about, let's take care, let's cover him too with an altar to the unknown god. Very religious, worried about, you know. But that was all based on earning a god's favor. And the gospel is you can't earn god's favor. God granted graciously in Christ. If it, 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 it's earned, but Christ earns it, and then it's given to you. You know, that's, that's why it seems strange. But at the heart of the gospel, we have our passion for God's glory. That's, that's the motive. But also, there's this readiness to give reason. This readiness to give reason for why we follow Christ. Why we have this hope. Why we're passionate about God's glory. And then, there's, there's the message, which is centered on Christ and the resurrection. And let's, let's be honest. Sometimes we call evangelism things that aren't evangelism. I affirm that you build relationships with people who are not followers of Christ. I affirm that that is a, that is a correct activity for a Christian to be involved in. But that is not, in and of itself, evangelism. I affirm that Christians should be helping the poor, feeding the hungry, um, uh, you know, he- helping the blind, uh, ministering to the needy, helping the underprivileged, protecting the weak. Those are all things, those are gospel activities. Those are things that accompany the gospel and are part of true, true religion. You know, to, to care for widows and orphans in their distress. James says that's true religion. God accepts that. That's, but that is not evangelism. I affirm it is appropriate, but it doesn't become evangelism until we're reasoning, proclaiming Jesus. Until we get to Jesus, it's just simply not, it might be good, but it's just not evangelism. And then finally, and this is kind of where we get to uh, verses 22 through 31, and we're not going to reread that, and I'm not going to look in detail about that, but I want you to see that's just simply contextualizing the message. Contextualizing the message. Paul takes the truth of the gospel, Jesus and the resurrection, 
and puts it in the context of the people of Athens, especially those at the Areopagus who just like to, you know, hear something new. Because how does he start? He starts, men of Athens, I see that you are very religious. And I observed your objects of worship. And I even saw an altar to an unknown God. Now what you worship is unknown, I proclaim to you today. And then he, then he goes on talking about how God doesn't live in temples. Now he begins to talk basically against everything they believe. Because they believe that, well, they served their gods by building temples to their gods. And their gods were served by them as they built those. And their, and their gods actually lived in those temples. And Paul says, God who's the Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in temples, nor, you know, built by hands, nor is he served by human hands. Exactly the opposite of what they believe. You know, I mean, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't water down or prostitute the gospel in any way, the truth, but he puts it in a context that they understand. And that's also... At the heart of evangelism, you know, there's, there's our motive, our passion for God's glory, our, our willingness and readiness to give a reason. There's the, the, the message, which is the truth, the gospel of Christ and the resurrection. You know, the gospel centered on Christ and the truth of that. And then there's communicating that in context. That's, that's what we're getting at the heart of the gospel. We get at those things. Next week, we'll talk a lot more about so the, you know, contextualizing the gospel, sharing the gospel with individuals and groups in their context, and we'll even, you know, we'll talk about some real practical things in that. Okay, but this week, I want us to really focus in on those first components, especially our motive. It, is there a passion for God's glory so that when we see this idolatry and we're provoked? Is that, you know, is that, is that your heart today? Don't have to answer that out loud. That was rhetorical. Okay, that was one that he's answering inside. In fact, the next several are going to be that way. Okay? Then, are you ready? Is there a readiness in your life to give that reason for the hope you know, that you have within you? A reason for that passionate desire for God's glory. And are you committed to the message, the truth? Can you articulate the gospel? The truth about sin, separation from God, you know, Christ and his work of redemption. The, the crucifixion, the resurrection, his, his return, the, the uh, response of repentance and faith. And those are all components of the gospel. That's the, that gets at the truth. And that's at the heart of evangelism. There is no evangelism without that. Okay, there, There's no evangelism without any of those things. They're all, they're, they're, they are at the heart of evangelism. Where are those things present in your own life? I want us to pray. And then after that, Brett's going to come up and lead us in another song. And um, that this, this last song is meant to be, you know, a, a singing out response to what we've heard in the scriptures um, this morning. So won't you bow with me and we'll pray. Heavenly Father, um, uh, God, I, I pray that we'd have 
a passionate desire for your glory. May we be provoked, filled with righteous indignation and godly sorrow when we see the idolatry in us and around us. May we address it with a readiness to communicate the, the gospel, to give a reason for the hope that is within us. And, then, and, and God, may we know the gospel because the gospel impacts our lives and has impacted our lives and will continue to impact our lives and we constantly have it before us and we're, we're uh, studying and, and understanding and appreciating and, and living out the gospel. That we just know that. It's, it's part of the, that truth is part of our lives. And I pray those things would be true in us. Uh, for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.